Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, I have an interview for you with Dr. Glenna Matthews. Dr. Matthews earned her PhD from Stanford University in 1977. She went on to teach at many universities, including Oklahoma State, Stanford, UC Berkeley, and UCLA. She retired from UCLA, but continues to lecture on history. She has published many books, mostly focused around women's history, including Just a Housewife, The Rise and Fall of Domesticity in America, The Rise of Public Woman, Woman's Power and Woman's Place, 1630-1970, Silicon Valley, Women and the California Dream, and the focus of today's episode, a book called The Golden State in the Civil War, Thomas Starr King, The Republican Party, and The Birth of Modern California. This was a fascinating conversation, and I'm one I know you will enjoy. Before we get started, just a reminder, if you want to support this podcast, you can do that in two main ways. First, by leaving us a rating and review on whatever platform you listen on, or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. Let's go meet Dr. Glenna Matthews. So we're talking today about California and the Civil War, and I want to take a step back and talk about the historiography. And for my listeners, again, the historiography is just kind of how the history has been written over time and how it's changed. And I want to ask you um, if you can give us just a brief overview of the historiography of the Civil War in California. It seems like there is not as complex and in-depth historiography as there is in certain other areas of the Civil War. Uh, there's been so many books written about things going on in the Eastern theater of the Civil War, but less in the West. Can you share a little bit in doing your research what you kind of learned about how this period has been written about? Well, that's a great way to start off. I found out that there's really, there's a big gap. I found that the students of Herbert Eugene Bolton at Berkeley earlier in the 20th century, they wrote some good stuff about the Civil War, but there were decades when almost nothing was written about California in the Civil War. And I find it extraordinary because much of the recent literature has emphasized the Civil War on the home front, the role of women, the role of charitable organizations like the Sanitary Commission, California is so important in all those different areas. And yet, I think before my book, there had been nothing of great consequence written about California in the Civil War for a long time. Now that's beginning to change. My book came out, and a year or so later, uh, Stacy Smith published her wonderful Freedom's Frontier about enslavement in California. And now we have Kevin Waite's book, West of Slavery, which is splendid. And we have um, Andres Resendez's book, The Other Slavery, about Indian enslavement. And there's a scholar who I don't think has published a book, but is a brilliant scholar of Indian enslavement. And in fact, he has an article in the December 2022 issue of the Journal of American History about Indian enslavement in California which, of course, encompasses this period. So, oh, and one other scholar I should mention, there was a dissertation at UCLA a few years ago by Daniel Lynch about Confederates in Southern California. 
So mm-hmm. I think there's beginning to be literature. And what we're getting is wonderful. I mean, I think in general, it's really sophisticated. It's really good. I wrote a dissertation at Stanford in the 70s about the history of California. I was a married woman with two kids in school, and I didn't think I could travel to do research. So I decided to research San Jose. I was in Sunnyvale, Stanford. And in fact, I wrote a dissertation about the Great Depression in, in San Jose. And when I went to look at dissert, you know, research that had been done about California in general, it was astonishing how little of real quality had been written about the history of California. California was provincial. To write about California was provincial. If you wanted to make it tenure at Berkeley or Stanford or UCLA, you couldn't be caught doing something provincial. A New England town, that was American history. That wasn't provincial. And it has been my, what should I say? It's been my um, holy grail to try and call more attention to California. But it's an uphill struggle. And I'll give you one for instance. I don't want to mention the name of a scholar, but a very well-known scholar of the Civil War, whom I know slightly. I saw at a convention. And I said, oh, blank. My book on California and the Civil War is coming out next year. And he looks at me and says, how many battles were fought in California? And I looked at him and I said, you more than anyone should know that what happened on the home front to keep morale up, to keep the North in the fight, was of great consequence. In some ways, this bent towards battles and military history. Do you attribute that as one of the main reasons for this kind of view that California was less important, the preeminence of military history in a lot of people's minds? Well, there's that. And then there's just the fact that as important as I think California is, it just has not been adequately folded into the national narrative. Mm. Textbooks were written, and I haven't looked, I haven't taught undergraduate history in 20 years, so I don't know, I can't speak to the current crop, but where California would show up in the gold rush, maybe in the anti Chinese movement, maybe Hiram Johnson and the progressives. Cesar Chavez, but nothing, I once was working on a textbook and I inserted something about the birth of Silicon Valley, which of course I've written about as well. And I think it was taken out. And I mean, given that California, tech in California is such a driver of, of the economy, not only, I mean, it's a worldwide concern. I found it extraordinary. So yes, battles in military history is one problem. And the other is there is just a lack of imagination. I think about a lot of people who study, you know, study in the East, teach in the East, write about what happens in the East. That's American history. Well, and I I, I think one argument sometimes that is made is a paucity of sources, but we have, I mean, this was such a prolific period in terms of writing and newspapers and all these different outlets that there's, there's a, a surfeit of sources. So it seems like 
there's there's really no reason other than uh, some kind of snobbery that you wouldn't want to, to write about and explore California's role uh, in some of these major periods. One other book I should mention, which is, I think I just can't say enough how, how much I, it's got a brilliant narrative structure as well as being a wonderful book. And that's Megan Kate Nelson's book, The Three-Cornered War. And it begins to fold the West into um, the story of the Civil War. But yes, I mean, speaking of sources, oh boy, <laughs> I get carried away when I talk about speaking of sources because one of well, one of my most exciting experiences as a historian, and I've been at it for a while, like 50 years, was when I was, why well, I'm going to be very confessional here. I had a new grandchild who was a toddler in New York City. I wanted a good reason to spend time in New York City. So I went to the public library. I had a general idea that they would have material. They had 11 boxes on California in the Civil War from the Sanitary Commission papers, never cataloged. And I spent a month. I found a letter from William Tecumseh Sherman they didn't know they had. It was incredible. It was an incredible source because they had material from, well, what my book deals with, among other things, is there's this Unitarian clergyman, Thomas Starr King, who comes to California just about the time of Sumter, and well, a year before Sumter, I should say, and then begins to organize after Sumter on behalf of the Union and really throws his heart and soul into organizing for the Sanitary Commission, which was hugely significant, both in terms of the material goods that were being paid for, but also letters showed me that people in the East were very heartened that this new state was throwing itself into this effort so wholeheartedly. So this collection, the 11 boxes, are after... Star King died tragically in March of 1864. The Sanitary Commission paid for agents to go all over the state of California. And there are these letters back to the headquarters in San Francisco from gold rush towns, from all kinds of places where they'll say, oh, I didn't do too well here because there's a coppery tinge, i.e. copperhead, i.e. pro-Confederate, where I was. Uh, somebody writes a letter from El Monte. The Monte boys were there. They were pro-Confederate. And he writes and says, people in the front row of my talk were armed with buoy knives. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's incredibly colorful. And it's from towns all over California. And I should... I always give this plug. There are two plugs I want to give. One is that somebody should write a grant to digitize this collection. It is so rich. It's in the New York Public Library. It's now been cataloged through Faust um, after she published The Republic of Suffering, and she used the Sanitary Commission collection. I think, and she was president of Harvard, so she had a certain amount of clout. She managed to get a large grant to pay for cataloging the entire Sanitary Commission papers at the New York Public Library, including California. 
but they're not digitized. And they would be a fantastic source for high school kids mm. because almost every town in California, I don't want to exaggerate, but you wouldn't believe my family lives in Gilroy. There was a letter from Gilroy. And my other pitch is Thomas Starkane was this remarkable figure. I would love to see a book for fourth graders that would be supplemental to the curriculum so that this history would get known in, in elementary school. I couldn't agree more. And I, a few episodes ago, I interviewed George Miles, who just retired from uh, Yale and he's the librarian and he was the curator of the Western Americana collection they had at Yale. And there's just so much there that needs to be written about, explored, unpacked and used. And I, I couldn't agree more that, you know, hopefully this is the, your book in many ways aspired this renaissance of new work on the West in this period. Um, so let's jump into that and talk about Confederate influences in California Thank you for bringing up uh, Dr. Waite's book, uh, another past guest of the show. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit about uh, this little known branch of the Democratic Party called Chivalry or Shivs. The um, Shivs, yeah. Yeah. Who, who were they and how did they emerge in California? Well, Dan Lynch is the one that's going to be the ultimate authority on that. But um, they... As you probably know very well, California, well, this was not just a, into California. In general, as people moved west, they tended to move laterally. So if you look at the state of Illinois, for example, the more northern parts of Illinois are much more northern sympathizing. By the time you get down to Cairo or Cairo, however you pronounce it, in the very southern tip, it's essentially a southern town. And so this pattern obtained in California, New Englanders go to the Bay Area, and the people from the southern states tend to wind up in Southern California. And so Southern California, a lot of the prominent politicians were from slave states. Kentucky, uh, William Gwynn, who was a pioneering senator in this state, owned 200 slaves while he was representing in Mississippi, while he was representing California in the in the U.S. Senate. But he was not alone. There were many other pro-Confederates. Uh, I should mention one other um, wonderful book by Leonard Richards. I, you probably know the exact title, but The Coming of the Civil War in California or something, some mm -hmm. such. It's a terrific mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. uh, I read it. It came out a year or two before mine, and I found it very helpful in, in thinking about the uh, run-up to the Civil War. Southern California is populated by people from the slave states, and it is a hotbed of pro-Confederate sympathy. But the pro-Confederate sympathy is not confined to California, to Southern California. The Crittenden family, who come to this state from Kentucky, they're in Northern California, and they are very pro-Confederate. And I found another wonderful source. One of my archivist friends told me, oh, you've got to go to the Clements Library at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor because they have the diary of a spiritualist who came to San Francisco in the Civil War and wrote glowingly about Thomas Starr King. 
And so I, okay. And it's 10,000 pages, this diary. So I get to Ann Arbor and they said, oh, well, yes, yes, go, go for this diary. But you should know we have the papers of the Crittenden family and you're going to find them very interesting. Mm. Boy, did I ever, because it's all about, you know, their pro-Confederate activities. Now, I, I know that this branch of the Democratic Party managed to achieve office at a pretty high rate in California, but actually, how much influence did they have? I mean, I spent some time uh, looking at this, uh, the rhetoric around uh, either expulsion of African-Americans or preventing African-Americans from living in California. Do you view uh, this kind of stuff as more rhetoric or were these actual uh, plots and plans by uh, Confederate leaning politicians? I don't think, no, I don't think that that was likely to come to fruition. And as you undoubtedly know, there were colored conventions in California so that the African-Americans in the 1850s, the African-Americans are absolutely fighting back. And there was a point I was about to make, and let me just take pause a minute and and see if I can recapture the point I was going to make about the pro Confederates. Um, there, I think they before Sumter, their numbers were smaller, but the people who were pro Union weren't as ardent. So the pro-Confederates, I think, had, they punched above their weight to a certain extent. I think that's the role that Thomas Starr King plays in really energizing people around what the union stands for. And um, ultimately, the whole question of the Emancipation Proclamation and the politics of that in California was fascinating. But I think he very successfully preached idealism which had been in short supply in California. Well, let's just jump into Thomas Starr King now then, because I, I have a bunch of questions and I want to set stage for people because we don't really have a sense of what Unitarianism is now today. And sometimes that word is thrown around casually in history books as if people know what that means. And then there's this concept of, you know, there's this Lyceum movement as well uh, that is occasionally dropped as vocabulary, as if people know these things. But I think in some ways, I think it's sad that we have lost this kind of influence of this kind of progressive religious wing uh, that had a place in society that could speak a common language uh, with religious people, but have slightly different ideas. And it, it doesn't really exist anymore. So can you kind of set context for people what these things are? Well, yes. The Unitarian denomination broke away from the Congregationalists decisively in the early 19th century. And the most famous uh, Unitarian was undoubtedly Ralph Waldo Emerson, though he he left the ministry in a formal way. But one of the things, one of the documents I found that I thought was so interesting that bears absolutely on what we're talking about, the kind of Bishop of Unitarianism, the founding father, so, so to speak, was William Ellery Channing, a Boston clergyman. And in the 1820s, he wrote this, or preached a sermon, remarks on a national literature. And what he said, and it's very close to some of the things Emerson was saying, too, about, you know, we're a new nation, we can't depend only on the old world for our culture. 
But what Channing says is that we need a democratic culture to go along with our democratic polity. And our denomination is the element that's going to supply that culture because we are progressive and our values. At that point in the 19th century, Unitarians, they rejected the Trinity. They didn't necessarily reject, they weren't atheists. They were more deists, a la la Thomas Jefferson, while rejecting the Trinity, but very much espousing uh, values that were consonant with democratic values. And so Channing issues a call and a great many of the greats of uh, 19th century American literature, in fact, were Unitarians like Emerson. Margaret Fuller, a great woman intellectual, was Unitarian and so on. And so Thomas King was born in 1824. He His father died when he was a kid. He never could go to Harvard, but he was self-taught. And I found a letter this man wrote, and he's really influential in California, so that's why I'm giving this background. He wrote a letter as a teenager to his best friend all about Kant. And if you can't read German, then, you know, this is what you have to... It's like, my gosh, (laughs) you know? He's grappling with German philosophy when he's a teenager. So he, New England in this period was just heady with, there's a sense of liberation from the feudal ties of the old world, but also headiness around creating a national culture. And the Unitarians are absolutely in the forefront of that. So when Thomas Darking when the Lyceum circuit begins to be a thing, and that really requires the railroad to be to be in place, a, ne- a railroad network, because people like Emerson was the most famous. Sojourner Truth was part of this network. And so was Thomas Starr King. So he would preach a sermon in Boston and then hop a train for Cleveland and be back in time. And he lectured all over the North So before he got to California, he was a very well-known public speaker, as well as being a clergyman. And the Unitarian Church in San Francisco was founded in 1850. They had an empty pulpit. And I've read things that suggest that the denomination really wanted one of their strongest speakers to fill the pulpit. And in fact, I found this wonderful letter from Emerson to Thomas Starking saying, at last, California has a fit saint to guide us. Hmm. So the idea was, you've got the right values. You go to California. It's a hotbed of pro-Confederate sympathy. You know, it's, it's unredeemed. And you have to go and preach good values. And at one point, he preaches a series of lectures, not sermons, on New England poets. And he writes to one of his closest friends, James James Fields, who was the publisher of Kickner and Fields and also the editor of the Atlantic Monthly. 
And he says, you know, we want to New Englandize California. Star King, well, the whole reason that I I decided to write this book, I'm primarily a history historian of women, but in 1995, I curated an exhibit on the history of San Francisco, and I used a Star King letter for that uh, history, and the letter was absolutely riveting. And then when I read some of the other letters, and some newspaper accounts, he gets to California in late April of 1860. And in on August 1st of 1860, which is the anniversary of British emancipation in the West Indies, he speaks to members of the assembled black community of San Francisco. And he, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially he says, the places that are the most diverse are the most blessed by God. And then he says, wherever the oppressed are gathered, Christ is there also and not with the oppressors. And people in the audience were weeping because this was the first prominent white person who had told them that they were a blessing. Their, their presence was a blessing. And that's what made me want to write this book. I just thought it was so interesting that in this place that all this racism was and horrible treatment was flourishing, a prominent person is saying the things he's saying. And how was he received by the broader white audience in California? He was a celebrity. He was a rock star. I mean, this is, this is why the letters from the spiritualist were so interesting. He... He was short, but he had a magnificent voice. He was, I mean, from his letters, I take it, his letters are unbelievably charming. So I imagine that in person, he must have been very charming. And this spiritualist who's writing back to his wife about being in the congregation, he's like, oh, I nearly swooned with the delight, the great, with delight, the great man was in his element today, or words to that effect. Uh, so he, he captivated audiences. And when he died at the age of 39, 20,000 people came to his funeral and the state legislature adjourned for three days in his honor. So he had an enormous positive impact on the state. Hmm. And can you say kind of concretely what his vision for the Republic was? Is, is he kind of uh, repackaging ideas from his New England milieu for California or did he have a unique vision? I think... That's a really, really good question. Because I did not want to sound too much like I was writing hagiography. I was thrilled to find some speeches where he seemed to advocate manifest destiny. I mean, it's abhorrent, but yeah. it gave me something critical to say. Because after he died young, I mean, it's like he was being almost compared to Christ. I mean, the letters are so full of encomiums and uh, yes, I think he had a New England vision. I think that he had some of the 19th century racism that so many white abolitionists did. On the other hand, I think it's important to point out that 
I came across a letter that he waited until the emancipate the preliminary emancipation proclamation, which was September of 1862, before he wholeheartedly threw himself into fundraising for the Sanitary Commission. And he writes, I, I wanted to know that this was a war to end slavery. So he he was not without flaws, but he did envision a multiracial society. He had been very critical of Lincoln for not going far enough. And he spoke to many, uh, he spoke to black literary societies. There was a thriving black society in, in San Francisco, even with all the racism. It was not huge, but you know, there were newspapers, there was there were churches, there were literary societies, and he participated. There was a black woman journalist a hundred years ago, Delilah Beasley. And she says she provides an anecdote that Thomas Starking heard that there were people still being enslaved somewhere like in Marin County, and he immediately went to see what he could do about it. Now, I don't know that that ever happened, but that gives you an idea of the stature he had in the black community because he had been, you know, a, a pretty outspoken advocate. I don't think he was as enlightened about some of the other forms of oppression that were taking place in California. His great friend was Bret Hart. Bret Hart was very, very outspoken about the near genocide in Humboldt County. When Star King died young, the man who was running the Sanitary Commission, California was that important to the running of it, was raising so much money. Henry Whitney Bellows came from New York to California and he denounced the treatment of the Chinese. So there were white voices on that, on those two subjects, which were really important. But um, Thomas Star King was not a prominent voice that I ever encountered on those subjects. Let's um, let's pivot to talking about the Civil War itself in California. I've got three different topics. I want to start by talking about some of the conflicts that are little known that took place during the period. Uh, do you see the uh, indigenous conflicts that happened in the Southwest in Arizona, New Mexico, as part of the Civil War or tangential or side conflicts that emerged um, just as troops were stationed in the area and protecting the area. Because I, I'll admit in my education, I wasn't as familiar with these Apache wars that were going on and these conflicts in the Southwest. And I know some historians have kind of lumped them in with the broader genocide project in California. How do you view them? Well, very much in that in that vein. Another historian I want to mention um, is Elliot West. I heard him give a talk just as I was beginning. I had already done quite a bit of research. It was actually, it was Lincoln's birthday, 200, you know, 200th birthday. And there was a symposium at Stanford. Elliot West was there. James McPherson was there. And I spoke about Thomas Starr King. And um, Elliot West argues that 
it's a greater reconstruction that you shouldn't separate the Indian Wars and the Civil War. That there's this whole process because after all, what precipitated the Civil War was Western settlement and conflicts over where slavery will be extending. And so to say, oh, there's this Western expansion, you know, drop, then there's a Civil War drop and reconstruction. And then we have the Indian Wars when they're overlapping in so many ways in time, in personnel, as you probably know, a lot of the men who are uh, in the West before the Civil War wind up fighting in the Civil War. And Phil Sheridan, uh, people like that are part of the of the Indian War uh, scenario after the Civil War. So I think subduing a continent and determining will slavery be a permanent institution or I mean that's all caught up in the same general process and that's I really recommend the work of Elliot West and that's why Megan Kate Nelson's book is so good because it really ties some of these threads together. Let's talk a little bit about the gold um, and the wealth that was accumulated from the gold uh, something that's not often talked about, how important Western gold was uh, to the Civil War. Can you share briefly uh, why people should see it as more of a cent centerpiece for uh, how the Union was able to uh, be victorious? Oh, I'm so glad you brought up that question. When I was just beginning this research, I went with a group of friends. We were staying in Nevada City, and we went to the mine in Grass Valley. I can't remember the name of the mine, but... Mm -hmm. Anyhow, it's, it's you know, they give tours. And on the tour, the guy said, from this mine came the gold that helped win the Civil War. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And then as I was working on the book, I was trying to figure out how exactly did California gold play in? And again, I'm not going to name names, but I asked a number of people, how do you, I mean, California was so far from, in their minds, they just hadn't even thought about what role California gold. And the person that put me on to the right way of thinking about it was Richard White. He gave me some citations. So Richard White put me on to the right path. And what I came to understand is, is this gold was private. It wasn't like this was U.S. Treasury. But it was shipped regularly, the bullion, and it wound up in the reserves of northern banks. And when the war began, would-be creditors and would-be creditors, particularly abroad, were had the, the comfort of knowing that there's this California gold in the banks. Now, ultimately, the the U.S. government had to take more aggressive action. But in the early months of the war, when the financial structure that would eventually be created had not yet been created, that bullion from California in the northern banks sent a message, made it easier to get credit. And why that isn't written about more often is absolutely beyond me. But I think it's just, it's, an artifact of, of the phenomenon we were talking about, which is that California just is seen as an afterthought. 
And I just, again, the letter, I read so many wonderful letters about the, the, the Sanitary Commission that fundraising that Star King starts. After the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, in one week, he raised $100,000 from business interests in San Francisco. Well, that's a lot of money in 1862. And they wired, the Transcontinental Telegraph had just been completed. So they, here's this guy sitting in an office in New York, running the Sanitary Commission finances, George Washington Strong. And he gets this wire. Here's $100,000 on deposit, you know, with your bankers. It was just such a moment for them because, and then the money kept coming. In California, I think the total was $1.2 million that California raised. And that was far more than any other state. So we, the logistics of sending, we, we did send one battalion to fight in the Eastern Theater. And then, of course, the thousands of men who fought in the Southwest. But here was something that Californians could do and did do. And then the letters coming back to San Francisco, the offices there are, or to Thomas Dark King. I mean, he's hearing from people in Paris. You know, we are so thrilled that this new state has risen to the challenge this way. So it there was the material impact, but there's also... And that's why I think how, how you can write about the Civil War on the home front and not factor in the, this phenomenon that this new state is raising this fortune. Yeah, and I think I think there's a broader move. In, in conflicts themselves, I just am reading through kind of laboriously uh, Daniel Todman's uh, big series on Britain and World War II where he looks a lot at supply chains. Victor Davis Hanson wrote that big book about supply chains in World War II and starting to see these wars as more than just battles, but what it takes to fund the soldiers on the battlefield and making it a bit more complex. I do will, will fully admit I was not as familiar as I should have been with the Sanitary Commission. It wasn't until I read this a great book, A Clearing in the Distance, about Frederick Law Olmsted before I really, really kind of learned quite a bit more about uh, the Sanitary Commission. For those non-Civil War buffs uh, listening, uh, what what was the Sanitary Commission? Oh, I, I love answering this question. It's really, it's a wonderful example of the energy of women. The women of New York City were inspired by the example of Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War about 10 years earlier. And when April of 1861, I mean, very early, they decided to organize because they were aware that getting the right supplies, getting the right medical personnel could save lives of their sons and brothers and husbands and lovers. And at first, when the war broke out, a war that would cost hundreds of thousands of lives and engage hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men in conflict, there were 26 army doctors. I mean, there's this tiny medical establishment. So there's this overwhelming need, but it was it was unprecedented for a private group to take on 
any kind of a role. By the same token, the government didn't, I mean, they had their hands full trying to get men in arms. And so at first there was great reluctance to let these women get involved. And finally, uh, after a few months, there's official, what should I say, official agreement Men are in charge of the Sanitary Commission, Olmstead, Henry Whitney Bellows, uh, George Washington Strong is the treasurer. But the foot soldiers, the energy is coming from the women. There were maybe 10,000 soldiers aid societies around the North. And I've, the Huntington Library has wonderful materials on, on this subject. Women are forming sewing clubs. Some of this is going on in the South, I should say, but before the Civil War broke out, the whole phenomenon of volunteerism was so much healthier in the North. Volunteerism as a phenomenon, some historians have called it the benevolent empire in the 19th century. It's very much interwoven with reform, with abolition, with women's rights, with temperance, and the South didn't want any of that, and so women were not had, did not have the same practice of organizing that women in the North had already developed by 18, 1860. So women are, they're making thousands of garments for soldiers in hospital. They're raising money to send medical supplies and so on. Let's kind of pivot to our last section now. Uh, which is talking about California before the Civil War and California after. In the sub, well, I guess it's the title, maybe not subtitle of the book, uh, you have a phrase, the birth of modern California. Can you uh, contrast for us or uh, show us what, how did California change? Uh, what, what was different about California after the Civil War? Well, let's talk about what was the same. Then I'll talk about what was different. Okay. Because before the Civil War, the state is controlled by pro-Confederate. Well, not every Democrat in California, like David Broderick was a San Francisco politician, a Democrat, but he came from New York. So he was not pro-Confederate the way William Gwynn was, for example. But he was not particularly enlightened about abolition or slavery or any, any such. During the Civil War, in 1860, Lincoln gets plurality of the votes. He gets California's electoral votes, but he doesn't win a majority. In 1864, Lincoln wins 58% of the vote in California. Mm -hmm. There's a union party where it's Northern Democrats and Republicans are controlling the state government. But then after the, I think actually both Star Kings voice is silenced and Abraham Lincoln's voice is silenced. And the Emancipation Proclamation has angered a lot of people, even in California. California reverts to being a democratic stronghold. So there's this blip during the Civil War, but then a lot of the racist elements, you know, come marching back. Yeah. And can I ask, can I ask you, sorry to interrupt, but in some ways it seems like the the democratic this particular wing that we've been talking about is cleared out and that kind of opens up this space for those more xenophobic elements that were part of the know-nothings um, that result in Chinese exclusion. Um, so it seems like it's kind of 
complicated and are things better or are things different, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, so I the politics, there's this brief period in the Civil War, some legislative change. I think black men won the right to testify in court, for example. And there's some glacial change. And then after the Civil War, the xenophobia and, and comes roaring back. Some of the Confederate politicians who had left during the Civil War, William Gwynn comes back to California. David Terry, who had killed David Broderick in a duel, comes back to California. Um, they feel completely at home in the California after the Civil War. What changed is that California now, because of the passage of the um, Homestead Act and the Railroad Act, uh, you know, giving federal encouragement and money to building the Transcontinental Railroad, which of course is completed famously in 1869. And now California is integrated into the nation in a way it never had been. And California had participated in the national um, conversation in a way it never had. And so when I talk about the birth of modern California, that's what I'm talking about, that California is no longer this cut off, you know, afterthought, though it might still be in the historiography of, of certain textbooks, uh, et cetera. So that's that's really what I had in mind when I wrote about the birth of modern California. Let's close with book recommendations. I know you've mentioned a ton of them already, so you can either mention mention some that you haven't mentioned yet or uh, point the listeners back to the ones that you feel like are the important ones that they should look to. Well, again, Megan Kate Nelson, a recent work by uh, Elliot West. Let's see, I have a collection of his essays here somewhere, um, but I'm not able to pull it out. Well, yes, I can pull it out. The Essential West, mm. collection of essays by Elliot West. West of Slavery by Kevin Waite, obviously, is, is very important. And the work of Ma Michael Maliari, he's really done, he's really done the digging in the sources to come up with stuff about uh, Indian slavery. And one other thing I might mention, I did not realize until I started working on this book, there are a number of Civil War sites in California. Alcatraz is a Civil War site. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly, the town of Temecula in the high desert, uh, I guess you'd call it that, it's south of, El of Elsinore here in uh, Southern California. It was on a, it was on the stagecoach line. And when Confederate wannabe Confederates would try and leave California to join the Confederacy, they would take a route that took them through Temecula. A few years ago, I spoke to a historical society in Temecula, and the town rented a bus and drove us out into the desert to look at some of these sites. So anybody that wants to find out about what was going on with pro-Confederates in, in California, there are places you can visit that illuminate this. And I think it would be a great, at one point I had a website and I, I had a list of all these and the guy who designed the website let it crash. 
And so my attempt to categorize all these wonderful places, one of the Indian enslavers, there's his home. It's just east of Oceanside. And you can read about, you can go to the home and read about what he was up to. Um, so there's all kinds of places that you can visit in California that illuminate this history. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for talking with me today. And I hope um, in your spare time, you get around to writing that fourth grade book about Thomas Starr King. I want all of my students to know that name. And I really just appreciate you uh, spending the time to share with us. Well, Jordan, I get so carried away talking about this stuff. I never, never get tired of talking about it. And I have to just share one other funny thing, I think. Yesterday, yeah. I attended a wonderful webinar by David Blight talking about Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. I mean, such an eminent scholar, brilliant man. And he got so excited still talking about Frederick Douglass. I thought, boy, he still gets excited. And then I, here I am today. I'm getting so excited. <laughs> but when you just love research you've done, it gets you very excited and perhaps overly verbose. <laughs> we, we eat it all up. So we appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much, Jordan. My pleasure. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.